to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, hey, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? You know, Dan, I almost didn't make it. I got out of my car, going into the house, see a bunch of uh, women. I'm thinking, all right, Dan and Benny groupies. And actually, it was the other way around. It was uh, a bunch of women who were offended at all my hooker jokes. They just started beating me and uh, throwing rocks. I just barely made it in the house, but I'm good now. (laughs) Yeah. You got you got some of that that old school territory heat now, Benny. You go oh, yeah. outside tomorrow, your tires are gone. That's right. Have somebody start my car for me. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of uh, of fans, uh, we we talk a lot about you know how how we grow and expand, and sometimes you know you can't continue what we've been doing without going back to your roots. We got a, a guest tonight. Uh, he's been on the show before. He's active on the page, and uh, we talked a lot to him a lot in the past. Benny, why don't you tell everybody who we got online with us? So he's here for the third time, a wrestling historian extraordinaire, uh, author of the fabulous book, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, From Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. We are absolutely thrilled to have back Mr. George Shire. George, welcome back to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Hey, Benny, Dan, it's great to be back. And I- I can't believe it's been so long. We were talking off air. You said it's been quite a few months. So glad to be back. And by the way, Benny, your joke, there oh. should have been a ba-boom after that. And you're out of here. <laughs> I'm going to be playing the borscht belt next week. All right. Well, we've got, uh, we still got plenty of time, George, for Benny to sneak in a few baseball references too. So, and, and well, Benny, and- have you been to all 30 baseball, major league baseball parks? No, no, nowhere near, but that's on my bucket list. I've got them completed and many of them repeated. Wow. Nice. There you Very go. And nice. I, could, I could talk some baseball with you someday, too. Well, if if there's one thing, every show, Benny will sneak in a dirty joke and a baseball reference without question. Sometimes. All right. Time. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of uh, uh, if we're going to stick with the baseball pun, speaking of striking out the last few weeks, uh, everybody we've had on the show, we've talked to them, we've gotten their opinions uh, about the event that happened, the Crockett anniversary a few weeks back in, involving the, and I use this term loosely now with what he's been saying, but Ric Flair's last match, we had Les Thatcher, a uh, longtime friend. He had some thoughts about it. DC Drake, uh, despite not being associated, he was very, uh, he had a lot of good inputs, Benny, on like addiction, his work as an addiction counselor about, you know, what, how you could tell that Ric Flair is addicted to being in the ring. Really interesting stuff, but we, we've gotten everybody's thoughts and you've been very vocal on this and not just as a historian and journalist, as somebody with a lot of opinions on wrestling. Uh, one, what did you think of the match and how do you think that what the event we saw affects Flair's legacy? Well, you're right. This has been something that's been out there for the last uh, week or two now. And I did watch the match uh, 
Benny, I believe it was you that sent me the link to it, and I did watch it. Um, and I, I actually posted, I said, you know, I think this was for me after spending all these decades watching wrestling. Um, I think it might have been the saddest thing I've ever seen. And I think I probably used the word pathetic. Um, the thing that really bothers me is, um, you know, I saw Ric Flair in his debut matches in the AWA. He was trained, as you guys know, by Vern Gagne. And we don't have to tell you what a storied career he had. And, you know, during the 80s, the late 70s and into the 80s, if there was a guy who I think we'd all agree had it all, he had the look, he had the mic work, the gift of gab, uh, the charisma, and whether he played a heel or a baby, uh, you know, he truly could say he was the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour, and, you know, his jet riding limousine, all the stick he had, and and he, he was good. You, you could be entertained and take in his matches. And then I watched this, uh, I, well, I hear about this uh, last match, retired, and Ric Flair is 73 years old. And the thing that bothered me the most when I watched it is, I don't know what other people saw when when they started playing his entrance music, but uh, it came to me almost immediately that the man he appeared to be just totally inebriated, yes. drunk or high or something. I mean, right from the get go, as he comes start started to you know strut down the the runway as they have in today's uh, wrestling world, and it was you know it wasn't um, <coughs> excuse me, it wasn't until about the um, boy, like the eight minute mark where, uh, you know, he finally made it to the ring. And from there, it literally was downhill all the way. So here's the deal. I watched the match and um, it was sad because I think personally, Ric Flair has done more in that one match and I don't know if he would listen to this or if he cares what anybody else thinks, but I think he did more in that one so-called last match he just had to tarnish every great thing he ever did in the business, for the business, and what the business did for him. And I think he tarnished it greatly. There, there was nothing real about the match that he delivered. I will forever not understand why he had to have blood in it, but I think that's his ego again. He he had to uh, do the, the blading and he just, I think by his own admission, he claims he passed out uh, a couple times in the match or whatever, claims he was dehydrated. I've heard stories. And you know, the sad thing about Ric Flair, let's just cut it to the chase and just say it the way it is. At this point in time, now I'm so, I'm going to be 71 years old in a month. So when I say this, Ric Flair is 73. He's an old man when it comes to working in a wrestling ring. And he would have been old. He would have been an old man at 63, maybe 53. And he has just stretched the limit beyond. He embarrassed himself. And if he thinks this is enhancing his legacy or it's it's making fans um, 
want to see more. I don't know. Maybe there are some some sick fans that, you know, will buy this. But I think at this point, his smartest move could be just to fade away. And I even said in one of my posts that I think he needs to find a rocking chair and just admit that retirement is here. But he's got such an ego. And the sad part, guys, he has lived the image that he projected so long for, you know, 35, 40 years. And in the 80s, it would be arguably uh, true that Ric Flair probably was the highest paid wrestler for a while, along with Hogan or others very close to them. He made more money than anyone, and he lived what he showed on the air. He'd be out celebrating. If he made a million, he spent two million. If he made two million, he spent four million. So he he's broke, and I know a lot of wrestlers that have talked about that. Um, a couple that I know personally from the AWA and that are good friends with Ric Flair, even to this day, have said he's broke, literally flat out broke. And he cannot admit that, you know, his star is gone. And he needs to go away and let us remember him from those classic matches in the 80s. Uh, when I think back to him wrestling Ricky Steamboat and the matches he had with Terry Funk and the matches he had with Harley Race right, right. and so many more. Um, and even though I, I thought at times Rick's matches were all of his matches were always kind of choreographed and need you kind of follow what he could do in the ring. It would be the same thing, but he was so good at it <laughs> and he needs to walk away. And that's all I can say is I don't want to see a broken down has been old man in the ring. And I, I really, I would also say to any promoter that books him, I think they're kind of the scum of the earth themselves. So how's that for my opinion? Well, well George, do you think we have seen the last of him now? You know, guys, I keep hearing that, that there, there's another he's talked about more. And I, I don't think so. I think he's, I think he's, he's so, he's so sick to not being able to do what he could once do that he is not ever going to admit that he looks silly out there. I mean, first of all, he looks like an old man. Yeah. And second of all, he is, uh, he, he can't do what Ric Flair could do. You know, I've had the I've had the honor over the decades. I remember when I saw Vern Gagne in his last match. And Vern was uh, when it, his first so-called retirement match. Now, Vern was, he was pushing, what was it, 1981? He's born in 26. So that would have made him 55, 56, give or take. And... Vern did a good job against Nick Bockwinkel in that last match, but Nick carried him a lot. And Vern still looked okay, but as far as I was concerned, having seen Vern in the late 50s and through the 60s when he was flipping and flopping and flying around the ring, he was so charismatic and so good, I was already saying to myself, you know, Vern, I'm glad that you're retiring because... I want to remember you the way I I remember you, not not this broken down guy. So Vern did make a couple comebacks. They were for storyline purposes. And other than that, yeah, he retired. But Rick, he's he's just got to admit that 
his star is no longer shining and let the fans recall and remember, you know, what he was to the business rather than what he's going to become. And right now it's an embarrassment. And that's my opinion. And and like I say, I saw him in his first match and I saw him on hundreds of after, after ma- matches after that. And I always thought his work was above and beyond. And so um, he's he's messing with that that legacy and he needs to accept it. Move on. Just move on. I, I think I think, too, it's it's the the lack of I don't want to say lack of seriousness. You know, the uh, excuse me, his when the story broke about him passing out, he posted, I linked it on the Danny Benny page. He posted the picture of him at the bar holding a beer. You know, oh, next time I wrestle, I'll make sure to drink more water. And he was immediately <laughs> saying, man, I wish I hadn't have called that my last match. And, I mean, you you nearly died because you can't do it. You were so drunk you couldn't stay awake through for the entire match. And Well, I should say maybe maybe you were dehydrated from alcohol, maybe not actively drunk. But... You know, you you have these issues and you're not taking it seriously. And it is it's almost more insulting how he's acted since the match than the match itself. And oh, don't even get me started on. I cried a little bit as a longtime fan. The the exchange he had at ringside with Cologne at the show with him throwing those. I don't even want to say punches. What would you what would you call those, Benny? Uh, uh <laughs> It's like a slap fight, like you have in kindergarten. <laughs> the 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 episode of, of pick any random cartoon and two incredibly uh, old, you know, Grandpa Simpson old characters fighting. That's what it looked like, but it was it was something else. And it's just I'm I'm glad to hear you you, you worded it the way you did because that your opinion was very similar. I mentioned the top of the hour with uh, like Les Thatcher and some of the others we've talked to that it's hearing it from the insiders, not just as fans, but someone who knew him and was there, you, 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 you can tell there's a much more personal level of insult of what are you doing to yourself? But, well, and I, and I would say this too, um, again, you know, age is something that whether any of us like it or not, it's all going, it's always going to creep up on us. And sometimes our egos, you know, we like to think that we can still do all the things that we did before. And, you know, our mindset is, well, I can still do that and I can still do this. Well, I got news for you. I never wrestled, but I said to you a minute ago, you know, I'm 70 years old and I will tell you right now, I can't do a lot of the things as well as I could 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And when I was, you know, 20 years ago in 1972, and you, you just come to the time where you got to say, you know what? I need to move on. A couple of years back, um, I want to say it's maybe four or five years now, there was a documentary that Flair did. And I, I saw it live at one of the theaters here. And a lot of the old wrestlers were in attendance. Jimmy Brunzel was one of them. In fact, I, I sat with the Brunzels, my wife and I did. And uh, we watched this documentary about Flair, and um, he cried through it. He admitted that he was an alcoholic and that he had abused his body and that he had done all these things and spent all this money and that he was broke. And then I know just a a year or two back, uh, maybe a couple now, he was very sick and 
almost hot. You know, he was hospitalized and there was talk that he wasn't going to make it. Right. And here he is now, you know, at 73, walking around like he he's invincible. And it, it's very sad because he might very he might well be one of those individuals. And I really pray that that isn't the case, but he might be one of these individuals just has to get in the ring and he's going to die in the ring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you guys watched the uh, the uh, the wrestler movie from a few years back. The one with um, with uh, Mickey, Mickey Rourke? Rourke, Mickey Rourke. Oh, absolutely. OK. And, you know, I watched the original wrestler movie with Vern Gagne. Gagne right. And I don't know if you guys watched that one. In the seventies, but in a roundabout kind of way, those movies, the two movies, had similarities about the the wrestler not wanting to leave the ring and not dying in the ring. And if you looked at Mickey Rourke, and you look at Flair right now, Mickey Rourke couldn't leave the or whatever his character was in the movie. Um, he could not leave the ring, and he he was going to die in the ring. He had open heart surgery. He had done every you know the movie I'm talking about now, and. Uh, I'm starting to see that the parody here with Ric Flair, that uh, he his ego is so big. He and and of course, like you say, he probably needs the money. And if there's somebody that's going to pay him the money, he's going to do it, you know. But it's sad. He just sadly he just needs to go home. Flair, go home. Let us remember the Nature Boy, not this broken down old man who can't do anything anymore. And I think we've beat that horse to death now. <laughs> yeah. George, so we're going to look at a number of things. Uh, I call it then and now. And just to compare and contrast how things were back in the day versus how okay. they are now. And the first one I wanted to talk about is actually the fans. And so I, I remember back in the day, I'd, I'd watch uh, on HBO, they'd have the, the card for Madison Square Garden. And there always be Mrs. Krieger, the old old woman who would beat George Animal Steel senseless with a pocketbook. And, you know, there were I'm, I'm sure every arena had fans like that. And, and but the thing was that these these shows were held at these venues often enough where the wrestlers and the fans could have that bond. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure I, I, I thought to myself, you know, Jerry Lawler walking down the, the aisle of the Mid-South Coliseum every Monday night. You got to see the same faces you know, 52 times a year. And and now, I mean, I live in Tampa. They might be in Amelie Arena twice a year. So that that bond is no, is no longer uh, a, a factor. And what do you think of that? I mean, I think that was an integral part of what made wrestling great. Well, I think you nailed it, Benny. Um, wrestling has changed in the fact that, like you said, it only comes to your city maybe once or twice a year. And, you know, in the territorial era, so let's just go pre-1990, every major city around the United States would run usually monthly cards, for sure uh, every other month, but usually monthly. Some were bi-weekly, some were weekly. I know down in Florida, you're there now, you said, they used to run weekly cards. 52 weeks a year, Tampa, Miami, Miami Beach, Fort Lauderdale, Tallahassee. And yeah, you go there and, you know, I went to the cards in in the AWA area and I I did some traveling back in the 70s to other territories. But in my hometown, we always had the usual group of ringsiders. The wrestlers would look to those fans to taunt them a little bit. 
kind of bring them into the act, so to speak. You know, we had one guy in our audience. Uh, he was an old guy. He, I say he was an old guy when we're talking old here just a minute ago. I say he was old. He was probably 50. I don't know. I was 30 at the time. So you know how there. that goes. But he would be standing there at every show and all the bad guys, he'd be giving them the finger. And he'd be he'd put that finger up so high. And the wrestlers would, you know, go in and interact with him. Sit down, old man, or shut up, shut up, you know, and, and make him part of the show. And um, we had, um, we had a, a, in our day, we were unpolitically correct. We had a midget that walked around the ring. He was a fan. Now, they're little people today. And his name was Ricky. And Ricky was part of the show because uh, the wrestlers would come in and he would be shouting to them and pointing to them and he, they'd, you know, tell him to go sit down or, or one of the, one of the wrestlers would say, why don't you stand up when you talk to me? Well, you know, the guy was only two feet tall, you know, why don't you stand up, you know, and give him crap. And, but yeah, the, the fans were integral to the show that was going on. And I'll also say that many of those fans, uh, some of them were just docile and came to watch the matches. And I, that would have been a guy like me. And then I was fortunate enough to get to know the wrestlers and have them as friends and, you know, life goes on. But we, we're never going to have that again, that interaction, because when they have a show once a year, the fan base at most is generic, not the same fans that were there a year ago. And there's just no planning for it anymore. So uh, we've lost that. But then you have to remember too, that today's wrestling isn't geared towards the arena wrestling house shows as they were called anymore. They're geared towards the regular pay-per-views or whatever, whatever the current term is for them. Um, I haven't gotten a pay-per-view for quite a few years. So, but I think that's the difference is that the fans cannot really get close to the wrestlers anymore and uh, have that interaction where they felt like they were part of the part of the action. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's interesting. Speaking of, of wrestling, um, something else we wanted to cover is ring entrances. Um, not that, I mean, there's anything inherently wrong with them. Some of the big spectacle that can come from a neat ring entrance resonates with people for years. I mean, uh, I, I still picture, you know, uh, Andre and Bobby Heenan coming down to ringside in that little robot, ro robo cart that was like a mini ring or, uh, but over time they've, they've gotten so theatric. Some, I mean, entrances will take no, no exaggeration, five to 10 minutes per wrestler just for entrances and you oftentimes have have matches where both wrestlers coming to the ring is a longer stretch of time than the match itself and i was curious of your thoughts on on that, if that detracts from the action uh does it feel too overly choreographed that it hurts the spectacle what are your thoughts on on ring the ring entrances as they've gotten bigger and grander through the years well you know the way I look at it is I have to remember again, we're talking different generations. Um, I totally agree with you about the long entrances to the ring. You know, I, anybody that's a modern day fan, and I always use the age group of say, if you're maybe 50 years old and younger, 
you are probably in that category where you can watch today's wrestling and you follow it and, and you love it. And those ring entrances, I, I agree with you. Uh, they come through the curtain. Their their music starts, for starters. They can't come to the ring until their music is blaring over the, <laughs> the speaker system. And, you know, and the auditoriums, as you see them, they're, they're very brightly lit. Uh, a lot of color in them as far as the, 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 the decor and the lighting. Um, the, the entrance ramp, as I call it, you know, the thing is uh, three, four, 500 feet away from the ring and they walk down that ramp and then their music starts and then the, the pyrotechnics are going off and the guys are jigging or jogging or dancing or whatever their shtick is. And then they're slapping the fans' hands and, and or accepting the booze, whatever it is. And, you're right. Uh, we just talked about the flair thing. That was eight minutes for him to get to the ring. Mm -hmm. And I know WWE, I, I did turn on WWE last night for 10 minutes. And the entrance to the match, the first encounter was probably about five minutes. So it is very, very different. But here's the deal. I grew up in an age where, in the era, where we had what I call darkly lit arenas when you walked into and again it doesn't matter what city you're in if you're in boston if you're in texas dallas minneapolis it doesn't matter you would go to the arena and as you walked into the arena uh, um, shortly before the start time of the card the actual starting time of the first match the arena house lights would go off the only thing that would be on would be the arena or the lights above the ring Depending on the arena, there was there was three, four, five, six lights. Usually mm -hmm. four lights seemed to be about the most common. And so those are the only lights that were shining down on the what I always called the, the wrestler's stage, the ring. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the auditorium became filled with shadows, dark. And when the first match up to the main event would uh, be introduced, the wrestlers... They used to do it very strategic in those days. The bad guys came out on one side of the arena to the ring, and the good guys would come out from the other side of the arena, building that illusion that they don't like each other and they're not in the same locker room together, okay? And there, were, there was no entrance music, obviously. So the wrestler, and, and let's just use the main eventers. We had the crusher who could always get a great pop, We'd have Bobby Heenan and Nick Bockwinkle as an adversary who could, you know, everybody hated them at the time. <laughs> so usually the heels would come out first. And we didn't have entrance music, but all of a sudden in the auditorium, and again, with only those ring lights on, you would hear the crowd in the back of the arena starting to rumble a little bit. You could hear the, 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 the boos, <laughs> and, and it would... And then as they got closer to the ring, Bachwinkle or Heenan with him, it would get louder and louder until you got to the ringside area where now the entire arena was dis you know, just erupting with this booing and they would get into the ring. Well, then obviously it's time for the baby face to come in. And so, and it didn't take them eight minutes to do this, by the way, or five minutes. <laughs> Nick and Bobby right. would come down the aisle and it would take them, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, but they were from the back to the front. 
to the ring. Well, then the, the crusher is going to come out. Well, the same thing in reverse. You hear the, all of a sudden you hear off in the faint distance, you hear these cheers because they see them come from the locker room area. And because they're there, you know, as he's walking out. And then as he gets closer, it gets louder and louder. And of course, by the time he gets to the ring, the arena is erupting in cheers. He gets in the ring, the announcer does their introductions, and you have your match. All in all, the entrance took two minutes tops. Okay, so very different. But I always say this, the worlds are different. You know, when I was a kid growing up as a teenager, I loved the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the beat or the Beach Boys and Creedence Clearwater Revival. And my my teenage girls are no longer teenagers. They're growing up and they're in their 40s. But they wouldn't listen to a Beatles record or a Creedence record if I put a revolver to their head and said, listen, <laughs> because it's bad music. You uh. see, they've got their own music. When they come to our house and we have music on in the background, we always put on the 80s channel for music and we have it light, you know, but as background. And the girls love it because it's 80s music. And it's their era. I get it. They were Joan Jett and the Blackhearts and... And whatever, you know. So I think we have to be respectful of the generations that understand that uh, everyone has their own. I can't watch today's product. I try. I can't tell you how many times I try. And I can't. I, immediately about 10, 15 minutes into it, I'm, I'm looking for that 15 minutes back in my life. So, but the same thing is true for, for uh, I have one friend, a neighbor guy. He, he's, I think he's fit, uh, 47, 48. Oh man, he loves the WWE. And he couldn't sit through me watching a, a Vern Gagne versus Nick Bockwinkel match. Again, if I put a revolver to his head, mm. because it's boring, it's slow. So it's all about generations, regardless of what it, what it comes down to. I, I hope that answered your question. No, I, I fully understand. It's like it's like if I want to watch real baseball and the only thing that's on is a Yankees game, I just have to turn it off, right, Benny? So this time I, I think he's silent. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. No, he he knows listen. he knows I'm messing with him, but I, I you know, it's funny you mention the uh the multiple entrances. That is one thing I will give AEW credit for is their their stage setup has separate tunnels. It's a heel and a face tunnel. As a matter of fact, uh just about a, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, uh Brian Danielson, who I think pound for pound probably the best wrestler in the world right now, he I was agree. he he's kind of a, a he, he was a heel back in December. He's still kind of coming off that run. And he had started talking and the crowd was cheering and he was like, whoa, 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 don't cheer me. Didn't you see which tunnel I came out of? You know, I came yeah. out of that side and he kind of told him, he's like, don't forget, I'm still a heel. I didn't even think about it until you said something. It's funny. I bet there's a lot of, especially with AW's crowd being as young as it is, they probably don't get the importance of the, the, the heel and face entrances, you know, because well, you want to create, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, well, I was going to say, you know, that's the main thing that's different about the business today versus yesterday, if you want to talk of then and now, is we had a clear-cut good guy, bad guy. It was easy to tell. You know, you knew the good guy and you knew the bad guy, first of all, by the way they dressed or the way they looked. 
you know, the bad guy always was a little rougher or scrungier looking. And, you know, uh, I, the one I always use is, is Cowboy Bill Watts. When he was a baby face, he had the, the white cowboy hat and Black Jack Lanza, still a <laughs> cowboy, but he'd come in and he had the black vest and the black handlebar mustache and the black hat. Right. Well, you can't define it any better than that. Black and white. And it was very easy for the fans to decide who was going to be good and who was going to be bad. They didn't have to be told. The other thing that's really different along those same lines, and you just touched on it with Brian Danielson. You said he's coming off of being a heel. Um, in my era, and, and again, we're going back pre-90, backwards. If a wrestler did a... Uh, change in the ring, a persona change, character change. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a baby and he turned heel or he was a heel and he turned baby and they worked it into the storyline. The thing that was interesting and good about that time is that he didn't change back and uh, three months later, revert back to his old ways, Right. no matter what. Whereas today I'm telling you, um, I've watched enough of WWE over the last couple decades where honest to God from time to time, I have no clue who's the good guy, who's the bad guy this week. And there's, there's no, there's no difference anymore. So I I think in the old day, in the old school days, if a wrestler made a face turn or a heel turn, it was for good in the territory. It wasn't flipped back six months later and then flipped back again, six months later It was, you were either going to be good or bad, but you might change to one or the other, and then that was your new character. George, this is one of my favorite topics, and I I just remembered when I was looking at this question, I actually wrote a letter when I was 14, 1969, to Vince McMahon Sr., Mm -hmm. asking him why why does George Steele always face uh, Lee Wong? (laughs) Or uh, you know Lenny Solomon or Miguel Feliciano. Why can't you make the matches more even? Of course, I never got an answer. But um, so <laughs> this, I want to talk about the squash match. And I, I mean, I I grew up on a, on squash matches. I mean, you, you watch wrestling in the seventies. You had superstar Billy Graham against Frankie Williams or Silvano Souza. Th- they weren't. I mean, the entire hour of wrestling, pretty much that I watched, was showing either you know a baby face against an enhancement uh, heel or, you know, a, a, you know, a heel against an enhancement baby face. And that's now everybody has to beat each other. So I, I thought that there was a purpose to those, those squash matches. There was. And, you know, here, here's the difference again. Now in those days, we talked earlier about the arenas and having weekly, monthly or biweekly cards all year long. And, the, the idea with the television in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even a little bit into the 90s, was that you don't give away anything free on TV. So you weren't going to put on AW, and I'm just going to say AWA because that's where I'm at. You weren't going to put uh, Nick Bockwinkle against the Crusher on TV in, in the 70s because if you did well, why would the fans then pay to go see them at the arena? And the arena, the house shows, was where they made their money. That was their money. So the television was set up where the star, Nick Bockwinkle, would wrestle the 
jobber enhancement talent, which we'll just use Kenny J. Nick would battle Kenny. Most fans figured, well, you know, Kenny doesn't have a chance. He never wins. Nick would win the match. But here's where the here's where television had its best. Then after winning the match, whether it was Nick as the heel that won the match or whether it was, let's just say, Vern Gagne, who had won his match as a baby. Once they win that match, then they go to the interview area where they have about two to three minutes for the interviewer. In this case, it would have been our Marty O'Neill or Gene Okerlund, Roger Kent. They would interview the wrestler and they would be talking about that upcoming card where, Nick, you're going to be in the ring against the Crusher. You know Crusher wants revenge for that foreign object that you knocked him out with. And, and Nick sells it. You know, I'm going to get rid of the Crusher. He's a bum. And his job during that two-minute or three-minute segment was to get the fans to hate him, to want to buy a ticket to see the Crusher kick his behind. <laughs> Same in turn, the Crusher's going to come out and he's going to sell the fact that he's going to send Hoodwinkle, Jerkwinkle, as he'd call him, back to California and get rid of him once and for all. And his job was to make you want to run to the ticket office to get that ticket to see Crusher kick Nick's behind. So the whole thing was all a promotion. But the emphasis of television was to sell the fans during those interviews. Now, every once in a great moon, they would show two top stars against each other on a TV match. And if and when that happened, it was usually to start a program between them for some reason, and that was a way to spark it. But after that, they would never meet each other on TV. And it was all done to get fans. And I'm going to give you an example of how powerful those interviews were to, to get fans to the arena. Our all-star wrestling show used to run at 6 o'clock to 7.30 on Saturday nights here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. And our arena cards in St. Paul and Minneapolis, whichever city they were running in that Saturday night, they would start at 9 o'clock. So the television show runs to 7.30. Well, usually around that last half hour of the show on TV, that's when those interviews are becoming a little more direct, a little more personal, a little bit more getting the fans to hate the wrestler that's going to be in the main event more. And here was the surprising thing. As the show would end at 7.30, you know, I'll use Marty O'Neill. He used to say, well, there you have it, fans. Tonight, Minneapolis Auditorium, the crusher, Nick Bockwinkle, will it be settled? Run, don't walk to get your tickets. And lo and behold, and this is a fact, between 7.30 and 9 o'clock, and let me point out that wrestling was always supposed to start at nine, but usually it was about quarter after 20 after. That was <laughs> normal. But nine o'clock was the posted time. But between that 7.30 TV time ending and the arena starting time, it was not unusual for the box office to sell another two, three, sometimes even 4,000 tickets. And that was the impact of what that television show did leading into it. Now, if they'd have given it all away on TV, which today's group does or wrestling does, 
But right. again, they're advertising your weekly shows to get you to eventually buy their pay-per-view show, which, you know, I don't know how often they have pay-per-views. Are they monthly, weekly? I don't know anymore. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're pretty much month. I think, I mean, sometimes more than once. The yeah. WWE has, I think, 14 pay-per-views a year now. And then when, when, when the WWE or AEW or whatever group comes in, um, I know when they come to the Target Center here in Minneapolis, uh, though they have a lot of the big names that are on television on, on Monday Night Raw that are on the card or on SmackDown, uh, they have many of those stars, but the matches are totally generic. They're not giving away the match that's going to be on the pay-per-view, if you, if you follow where I'm going with this. So they'll just have uh, four, five, six generic matches, two decent wrestlers against each other in every match, and that's your card. So the fans are basically going at that point for that one opportunity to see Roman Reigns or or uh, AJ Styles or whoever it is that happens to be on the card. But they're not going there to see a, a specific feud match that they're going to get to see in the pay-per-view. There's your yeah, big yeah. difference how they're promoted differently. And they don't have house shows anymore on any consistency. They're going to come to Minneapolis tonight and they're going to put their card on. Well, they're not going to be back until April, so they don't need to build anything from that card You know that you're there. Whereas... In our day, Vern Gagne said it to me best. He said, when they go out, when they watch TV, we get them to get to the arena. They come to the arena. When they're in the arena, we got to get them mad at the arena or get them excited to come back next week. So we'll do something at the arena to get them back. Well, Vince McMahon doesn't have to get them back because they're not going to be here till April. <laughs> yes, yeah, very true. So there, I think I hope that defines it perfectly for no, you. No, that's... No, that's that's perfect. Actually, it's funny because I think, well, you know, the last time I went to a televised WWE event, it was exactly what you said. It was televised. They were, they had, they, I think it was King of the Ring tournament was still on. They were building and, and it was a two hour SmackDown. And I think across that two hours, maybe 25 if we're lucky, you get 30 minutes of wrestling in a two hour show. Mm -hmm. And, then I think back, I went with some friends to a house show and it was an untelevised house show and it was match, 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 match. We had more fun at the house show than we had at the live SmackDown because it was all wrestling. It was, you know, I think I want to say it was like 10 or 12 matches, uh, some of them multi-man. So we probably saw 30 or 40 wrestlers across both brands. It was great. I, I had more fun at the generic wrestling show. Right than I did and that the way you just described it because the generic uh, the house show was more like the old school events yeah and you know that's the basic difference with wrestling today and then the other thing too guys a minute ago, or a little bit ago we were talking about the fan interaction when you had that regular weekly or monthly cards on a regular basis year round Yes, the fans became part of it. The fans got to know the wrestlers. The wrestlers got to know the fans. The storylines could be built in the in the ring, make you want to come back next week to see them get revenge. Um, you know, all of that stuff was set up sometimes during the matches to make you come back as well. And then you get on TV and they rant and rave about it. But the thing was, is that in today's business, they're not coming back. And the fans don't have that chance to have that interaction. And a lot of the fan base today is 
you know, it's a group of four, five, six buddies get together. Let's get some tickets, go to the matches, have some beer, hold up a sign, get noisy, rowdy, and be on TV or something, you know. And mm -hmm. that's their fun. So the business, it's almost, you know, there's an old saying, it's as different as night and day or apples to oranges. Well, I think that's what pro wrestling is from my era to what the current era is. It's apples and oranges, but it's still drawing fans and it's still making money. It's just that the two generations would never tolerate each other's product. Yeah, good point. George, one of the things that I think has kind of fallen by the wayside, and you covered a lot of, about tag teams in your book and how integral tag team wrestling was in, yeah. in, in the AWA, and it was in the NWA as well. And to me, it's kind of just fallen by the wayside. I mean, I remember back in the day when I was a kid, even at the Garden, if Bruno was, say, in Japan, there might be a tag team as a main event. Mm -hmm. and, and now it's really – I couldn't even tell you who the tag – well, not that I watch anyway, but – I, I couldn't tell you that, you know, many of the tag team champions in the last 20 years. I mean, what happened? What happened to the importance of tag teams? Well, I think, first of all, if you want to go back to my era first, I think, well, let's just say the tag teams. I think it's safe to say that for the most part, they've been gone as the tag team once was. They've been gone for probably 20 years now, maybe longer. Um, but back in the day, a tag team match was a way to tell, honestly, so many stories. There could be a reason that two guys teamed up. You know, if you had two baby faces that wanted to get revenge on one of the one of the heels, um, you know, the, the two guys would join forces because they were going to eliminate this guy. Or you'd have the two heels that were so bad that uh, someone, the baby face, has to get a partner. And then the stories that they could tell in the ring, we had regularly two of three fall matches. Now, today's matches, you know, I don't know, I think most of them, if they go 10 minutes, that's, that's good. In our day, you'd have a 20, 25, 35, 45-minute match. It'd be a tag, let's just use the tag team. Well, during that time frame, you're going to have, usually if it's bad guys and good guys, you're going to have the bad guys win the first fall in the match. That's going to engage the fans right there because they likely cheated. There may be a foreign object. Maybe the referee sure. missed an interference from a manager, whatever the case. And the good guys got beat. So the good guys are down one to nothing here. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, oh, my gosh, are they going to get beat two falls? And is the guy that they hit with the brass knuckles when the referee wasn't <laughs> looking, is he going to be able to, to be okay for the second fall? Because they would usually have like a, they used to say they had a two-minute rest period between falls. But also during that rest period, one of the bad guys would engage the referee into a conversation while the other bad guy still stomped on the poor guy trying to recover to get back into the second fall. So there was all kinds of little antics that they can do and tell these stories. And you'd have tag teams where two guys that had been together for so long, oh my gosh, all of a sudden they, they have a miscommunication and they break up and, and they're going to have a revenge against each other. So you got a good storyline going forward with that. Or you have a, a baby face who turns heel during the, during the match. Uh, maybe one of the, the heels turns a good guy. A million stories. And 
the, the other really important thing is, is that sometimes uh, the good guys wouldn't tell anyone who their partner was going to be. It's a surprise. I'm not going to tell you. And they, they'd hold out till the night of the match. And then, oh my gosh, can the Crusher survive teamed up with Pampero Furpo? Are you kidding me? And that was the difference with tag team wrestling. And then finally, you know, the, the tag team championships, obviously every team, just like the singles wrestlers want to go for the, the heavyweight crown, uh, the, the tag teams in the area are trying to get the tag team title. And the key thing was is that in that era, my era, titles weren't passed around like a hot potato. You know, a team won it, and usually it was the bad guys. Bad guys drew better as tag team champions because you always wanted to root for the good guys to come and end their evil reign. So in, in most times here in the AWA, we generally had uh, heel champions for tag team. And that's how it was different. Now today, um, I don't think I've seen the WWE have a decent uh, coercion of teams for, like I said, 20 years. And it's just, it's different. It's a lost art to uh, to be able to put on a successful tag team match. Well, not just a lost art, but a lost draw. There was a period, of, I mean, with objective evidence in the late 80s where the, the feud... Uh, among Mid-South, Memphis, and other areas between the Rock and Roll and the Midnight Express was the highest grossing draw in wrestling in the world, and it was a tag team feud. Yeah. I've never, I, I've told this story before, uh, I think, on another podcast, but ironically, the very first live card that I ever attended with my dad when I was six years old, and it was a rare thing where we, it was two heel teams at the time. This would have been 1957. And uh, the one heel team was uh, the Russians, Ivan and Carol Kelmakov. And the heel team against them was the Japanese team of Mitsu Arakawa and Kenji Shibuya. It was interesting because it was my first live match and I didn't quite understand what was going on. I remembered how loud the crowd booed. I mean booed. And I remember covering my little ears because it was so loud. They booed for both teams. And I poked my dad and I said, Dad, what are they? Why, why are they booing all of them? My dad said, I hope they kill each other. <laughs> well, that, that freaked me out. My dad, I mean, what? Well, here's what it was. That was uh, in 57. That was about nine years still removed from World War II, where the Japanese were our enemy. And the Russians, they were still considered, you know, even though they were an ally uh, to the United States in World War II, but they were still evil foreigners. And pro wrestling in that era really made uh, a lot of money putting Americans against foreigners. Anybody that was from Germany, Japan, Germans, yeah. yeah, Germans, Russians, um, th th they were automatically bad guys. Well, in this case with the two teams against each other, here was the funny thing. I would see one of the Russians punch one of the Japanese and the fans would cheer. And then I'd see one of the Japanese guys punch one of the Russians 
and the fans would cheer. And it was exactly like my dad said, the fans wanted them to just destroy one another. But the whole objective of the match was that both teams were going for uh, trying to win, you know, get a title shot. And in order to do that, one of them had to be eliminated. So there was your match. It was a, a unique, not often held heel versus heel. But in those type of situations, the fans will generally pick one or the other. They'll, they'll pick the lesser of two evils and go with one of them. The example with that in the most recent time was when uh, Nick Bockwinkel wrestled Sheik Adnan Al Casey. Well, Nick obviously being a heel, the fans chose him over Casey because Casey threatened to win the title and take it back to Iraq. Well, we can't have that. Oh my gosh, we're going to lose the title. We can't have this evil person. So they they sided with Nick for that match only. And that's the way it is. Fans will choose. But tag teams, lost art, miss them. And man, we I lived in an era where I, just hundreds, hundreds of incredible tag teams. Absolutely. You, you Go mentioned, ahead, Danny. I'm sorry. Uh, you mentioned the word interviews before, and, and that's kind of, it's a, a sore spot with me because I remember vividly watching, it was Gordon Soley interview Harley Race. I think it was a, a, about a match with Jack Briscoe, and they're actually showing the match, and you know they're, they're breaking down the match, and you would think they were talking about the seventh game of the World Series. Yeah. And even you know Gene Okerlund interviewing uh, Nick Bockwinkle and Bobby the Brain, you know, even Vince McMahon back in the day uh, when he had his uh, interviews back in the seventies, they meant something. They were short, but they you know they 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 conveyed a very specific point. Whereas now you get like a you know guy like Triple H or now Roman Reigns, they actually grab a microphone and they just ramble on for 15, 20 minutes, and they really don't say much of anything. And you know that and they you know they just ate up a lot of time that I could be actually watching a match. I just, yeah. I just think that's a that's a lost art as well, an actual interview as opposed to a promo. Well, let me let me put it to you this way, and I I agree a hundred percent with you. Um, a minute ago we were talking about how the uh, television was used for the two-minute interview to get the the bad guy or the good guy over in that interview, you know, for them to speak their piece and get you to hate them or love them. Um, you know, many many years ago, I was in a I was in an organization called Toastmasters. I don't know if you guys have ever. I heard have of heard it. of that. Yes, sir. Okay, Toastmasters is it's a it's a group where they they uh, they help people, encourage people, and get you to speak in front of a group and do it so that. You get their attention, make your point, and you get off the stage. And generally speaking, we were told that if you go longer than five to seven minutes on any topic, no matter what it is, if you go beyond five to seven minutes, you've lost your audience and you've lost the message you were trying to convey. So I think about it. I go to church on Sunday and I listen to our pastor or my the pastor. And he's great. I, you know, he's a great guy. But many Sundays, he loses the congregation because his sermon literally goes on 17, 18, 19, 20 minutes. And you find him repeating some of the same points that he made. And by the time you've went that long, your audience, they're gone. 
they're, they're, they've left church in their minds. They're out on the picnic. They're planning later in the afternoon or, or whatever, or you, you quit listening. And I think that would go the same. You'd, you'd realize that our, our, uh, maybe a politician, if you're going to give a message to the people in your political speech, get out there, open strong, grab them, make your point, close, get out of there. Five to seven minutes. Go any longer than that, and you're not going to listen to them. So that brings us to the interviews in WWE and today's type of, of approach. These guys come to the ring, and literally it's 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes. And by the time they're all done, I literally have said, what in the hell did, did he say anything? <laughs> and so that's the key point. And part of that is due to the writers, the scripters that they have today. Whereas back in the kayfabe era, uh, there isn't a wrestler of that era, Bachwinkle Stevens, Rip Hawk, Sweet Hanson, Bruno San Martino, I don't care what territory you go to. There is not a single one of them that ever had a cue card or a script put in front of them and, and read this, memorize this, and go out and do it. You gave them a town, you gave them an opponent, and you let them out there on an interview to do their two minutes, and again, to get you to love them or hate them, and they walked off the, the set. And that's what it's all about. So wrestling, like a lot of things in our world today, have, have lost it. And I don't care how good the speaker is, if he goes longer than, if he goes longer than 10 minutes, he's lost his audience. Yes, yes. You know, it's funny you talk about the art of of talking. There's a recent story that came out. Benny and I were talking about it before we went on the air. Uh, out of AEW, uh, apparently CM Punk, who I one of the best talkers of the last decade, easy. Um, he went off script, as it were, and oh. said some things. And it came out later that he, that was a response to uh, Adam Page going off script against punk weeks ago. And they a lot of people missed that that happened because punk played it off so well, you would never have known that wasn't what page was supposed to be saying versus, uh, Benny, what was it? Was it, um, what was the WrestleMania? I think it was in Tampa when they had the really bad <laughs> storm yes. and, and they couldn't, they couldn't, they, they delayed the show by like 45 minutes and they went around to the different wrestlers and they were just, hey, what do you think about what? And you could see these, was you know, some of these guys and girls 10 plus years in the business without without a script or a monitor had absolutely no idea. what They to were do. fumbling. Yes. You, I mean, some like Kevin Owens, um, Sami Zayn, some of them could could get through a promo, but some of them couldn't say more than a few words. Barely. I mean, it was it was like handing a, a first first day wrestling student. In promo class, I mean, it, you you see the difference, and it, it is a shame. And you mentioned a lost art, and that's something I I feel bad for him because of how much respect I have. But Tony Schiavone, one of his or Shivanto, as we say on this program, right, Benny? Uh, it, it, one of his <clears throat> primary duties is interviewer, and it seems at least once or twice a week he's in the ring, and he as soon as he holds the microphone out, somebody snatches it out of his hand and starts talking. And he becomes pointless, and you feel bad for him because it's like, what are the, what are you even doing here? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, again, that goes back to an apples and oranges type uh, thing where uh, the eras are different. Uh, you know, wrestling, I know, Benny, you, you mentioned that you're a baseball fan, and I am. And I think we could both agree, or at least I can, that the baseball I watch today, Major League, uh, there are a lot of things that are so different in the game and the way the game is played than what it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Like a, like and, a pitcher pitching nine innings. Well, yeah, I mean, help me out here. The 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 players today, you know, are Jack Morris and and Jim Cott and Bert Blylevin and guys of that era. You know, they went out and they were mentally they were prepared to go nine innings unless their arm fell off on the mound. Whereas I don't ever today, remember hearing the term pitch count ever as a kid. No, no, and it wasn't. And and today. Um, you know, the, the, the managers and the, and the management, they literally just tell a pitcher, you know, go out and give me four or five innings, you know, try to do that. Well, you're going to tell me in all seriousness that that pitcher, that his brain, his mind isn't saying, okay, if I get to the fourth inning, my day's done. And, he, he, you know, he's blowing up. But that's different. Um, this past season, or maybe it was last season they started it, but when they go extra innings, on the 10th inning, they, oh. each team gets a runner on second base. It kills me, man. <laughs> I can't, I cannot That's, get my arms around that. No, same here. And I don't know if you followed our twins at all, Minnesota twins, but I don't think there's a team in the major leagues that have been in more extra innings this year. And we've had to deal with that runner on second base. And I, I hope, I pray that over the offseason, they kill that. So that that's just it. Baseball, too. Just like any other thing, it has evolved. evolved and, and then let's remember that fans today have the attention span of a gnat. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't mean that as an insult. But my 100% era, correct. My era, I could sit through a 30-minute time limit Broadway between two wrestlers who gave me some action, uh, two scientific guys that gave me a clinic or a, a, a beat-down affair from a good guy, bad guy. I could sit there for 30 minutes. Today, if Vince McMahon, AEW, anybody, in all seriousness, if they put a 30-minute match on, I swear the crowd would be yelling, boring, boring, or they'd leave. They, they can't do it. So it, it's all the generation. It's all the, the way it is. Now you get no argument from me on that one. Benny, you mentioned uh, not knowing about a pitch count when you were a kid. Who was who was your team back then? Was that like the Red Stockings or the Silly the Silly oh, Nannies? Who the Cleveland Spiders? <laughs> He's going really way back. Eighteen ninety three. I think they lost one hundred and seventy eight games. Right, right. They they still they, pitched underhand back then, didn't they? <laughs> they they threw rocks. <laughs> I, t I, I I when they come up with this runner on second base rule, I said, "What in the hell is this softball or t or t-ball or what is this? Come on!" I, I I still think it's better than uh, uh I don't know how many years ago it was. Now the All Star game ended in a tie because yes. they ran they ran out of pitchers because right. they had rules about how many pitches each one was allowed to throw in the game. Well, and that was the, that was the game that that. Uh, all-Star game was the one that put the rule into effect after that, that whoever won the All-Star game was had home field advantage for the World Series, which yeah. I think they've now abandoned that. Well, can't, can't, a, a, at least, at least All-Star break in baseball still means something, you know, anybody yeah. out there that's a football fan, the, the Pro Bowl hasn't meant anything in my lifetime, at least. 
but but again, it just you know, as we said, with whether it be music or baseball or wrestling or whatever it is, um, it has evolved, and the new generation usually doesn't like the old generation, and that's just the way it is. It'll always be that way. I know when I was a kid, I told you I'd, I'd listen to the Beatles and and you know all of the, those rock groups, and of course the next generation they're not going to listen to that. Well, when I was a kid listening to the Beatles, I sure as heck didn't want to listen to the Glenn Miller Band or something that my dad would have listened to. Give me a break, you know. So well, you, you got to put everything in perspective. I mean, uh, I remember buying the when the Beatles anthology came out in was it 1996, 97. Mm-hmm. And the oldie station at the time played like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and early Stones and Bob Dylan and all. Yeah. You know, you figure that was 1996 playing music that came out in 1966. Exactly. So 30 years ago, the oldies that oldie station today is playing music that came out in 1992. So exactly. you got to you got to put everything in perspective. <laughs> when you think about those kind Excuse of dates. Me. I mean, uh, Queen is too old to be on the oldie stations nowadays. <laughs> you know. Oh boy. But, you know, as as we wrap up, Georgia, I I can't thank you enough for your time. It just flies by. You've been on the show several times. I gotta end with a question. We've talked a lot of serious topics, uh, something with a little bit of a humorous side. Um, it, it's not as big anymore. Uh, it was it was more of an attraction when I was a kid. Uh, but you mentioned when you talked about fans, you you mentioned a uh, uh, I don't know what the appropriate term is to use in wrestling, but you mentioned a, a little person. Um, a midget wrestling was something that was more common back then. Uh, I mean, honestly, I remember like uh, rest was it WrestleMania two with uh, uh, King Kong Bundy, King Kong Bundy, and and Hillbilly Jim teaming up yeah. with like Lord Little Brook and Little Beaver. Little and, Beaver, you know. Um, and then obviously in, in the into the early nineties when like Jerry Lawler had the had the comedic uh, midget henchman and and Doink had uh, Dink and uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was like the you know you you some of them were phenomenal athletes, but really it was the comedic break sandwiched in between the actual serious wrestling, and obviously that's as, in my opinion, as wrestlers themselves today have become the comedic break. Um, you know, it's kind of fallen by the wayside. I was just curious as because it was something Benny and I have talked about before. Uh, it's kind of the the last question to end on a fun note. What is your thoughts on on? Midget wrestling, as it was called back then. Well, and let's let's understand that when we say midget wrestling, we're doing we're saying it within the context of the era that it happened, and they were referred to as midgets. Correct. Correct. In that era, and yes, I mean that, that term has obviously fallen out of favor today. Today's world, you know, it's the same as I mentioned the uh, the uh, Japanese team against the Kelmakoffs. I've got a program from that card, and the headline on the program says "Dirty Japs." Mm-hmm. So that is totally politically incorrect today, but yep. it was it was in the day. Okay, so to answer your question, um, you know some of the things that you mentioned, we had an example of um, the Crusher back in 1965 or six. He was feuding with Larry Hennig and Harley Race, and he didn't think he needed a partner. He'd take them on by himself. He called them the Dolly Sisters, you know, and it was a comedic bit to that as well. Um, he made fun of Hennigan race, calling them sissies, <coughs> the Dolly sisters, and he didn't want a partner and he didn't need to get the d- dick, the bruiser in here. You know, he'll take them on by himself. Well, you know, the promoter comes out and says, crusher, 
you got to have a partner. You can't take them on by your. I got to get a partner. Okay, so Crusher's going to get a partner. Well, lo and behold, he comes out and his partner is going to be Lord Littlebrook. <laughs> and now there's now there in there is an instance where I felt you know that the the midget wrestler as they were referred to of the day I thought that was that was par for the course for the match they were going to have anybody with any common sense at all you knew that Hennig and Race were going to end up getting to that Littlebrook character and they were going to bloody him up or or injure him and then the Crusher's going to have to seek revenge in another match. And so it was used for that purpose. I think the examples you used, Dan, uh, were fairly close to that type of a thing where the midget guys were gore, the little guys were going to be the the uh, the fall guys in the thing and, and maybe take some some heat. But now here's the deal. Midget wrestling on its own, a midget wrestler versus a midget wrestler. Or in most cases, we had tag team matches. Tag team, right. And they were, in all seriousness, they were not a regular attraction on any card. They would come in, Vern Gagne would bring them in maybe once a year, twice at most. And usually it was on the holidays. Around Thanksgiving, they'd bring in the midgets. But here was the deal that always bothered me, and it still does to this day. Midget, and, and you guys, you're going to read this in posts that I put uh, uh, talking to folks at times on social media things. Pro wrestling of the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the very early 80s, they worked so hard to get you to believe that what they did was real. And they would never tell you it was fake. They would never tell you it was predetermined. And they would, you know, everything they could do. And then in my eyes, they would literally shoot themselves in the foot when they'd put a tag team midget match on. And for about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, you've got this choreographed same match you saw last year at this time where they're jumping around, hopping around, the referees getting stomped on, all four of them are piling on top of the referee. And it was all for laughs. And it used to bother me because I said, you know what? You're telling me it's real. You're convincing me it's real. And then you put these cartoon characters on and a five-year-old could see that it wasn't real at all. That was my only fault with it. Um, I don't honestly, I've never been able to verify in uh, attendance figures that having the midget tag team on a card drew more fans. So I don't, they say that they drew fans. I don't know. Do I have anything against them? Of course not. You know, they earned a living. They 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 did a good job at what they did, but I didn't figure they belonged on a professional wrestling card. And I will tell you this as we leave this topic. There were some wrestlers that did not want to work on a card where midget wrestlers were on. One of them was Lou Thez. Lou, Lou always walked around, held the title of the wrestling business to high esteem. He fought it as it was real. He dressed the part. And he wouldn't wrestle on a card that the promoter was going to put a midget match on. Wow. He said, I, "I'm not going to. I'm not going to have it embarrassed that way." Now that was his opinion, but I think there were a lot of fans that felt the same way. So I hope that answered your question. As a promoter, if I were a promoter, I would never, even if I felt I could draw 100, 100, 200, 300 more fans, I wouldn't put a midget match on. 
back in the day. That's me. You know, the, the last time I think I, I remember seeing anything close to that was the, the couple years ago, the WWE did what they called a WLC match at, at the TLC pay-per-view between um, uh, Hornswoggle and uh, uh, El, uh, El Torito, the little bull wrestler. Yep, and yep. I, I, I will admit as, as a, and Benny, you know, I, as a serious wrestling fan that, that, that hates all the flippy, silly, stupid stuff, that <laughs> match was so much more entertaining than it had any business being because it was obvious the two of them were taking it seriously. And I give them crap. I mean, granted, as seriously as you could take a, a, a match, a hardcore match like that. But, yeah. you know, I give them credit. But lo and behold, there's haha Vince in the background ruined it, having midget announcers and a midget referee that couldn't reach the microphone and and all the all the jokes about, hey, look, that guy's short. Isn't that funny? And like you said, Georgia, it completely spit in the face of this was the this was the pre-show i'm about to watch a pay-per-view that now i know is all garbage yeah well and you know it's interesting too because the midgets um i i always felt they were kind of an embarrassment to what the the promoters were trying to convey as being a real sport but it's it's one of those things when i look at today's product i say well yeah we have doink the clown but when I say that, then I have to stop and say, you know, pro wrestling has always had some bizarre characters. I mean, there's always been there's always been a promotion that had to have some guy that was, you know, you could pretty. I mean, did 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 everyone always really believe that uh, Pampero Furpo, the wild bull of the Pampas, who couldn't be controlled, could always just happen to be able to show up okay for the matches? I mean, was he civilized? And, that's, you know, that's why Vic. Furpo and uh, uh, Kamala had handlers that would bring them to the ring. Yeah, to make yeah. sure they got there on time. Yeah, well, I mean, wrestling has always been a great storyteller, and I just the midget matches just never did it for me. And I guess I'm thankful that they only did them once a year because I do think one of my buddies and I we always talked. Well, that was the time to get up and go to the concession stand. <laughs> so, and truth be told, that was also the time during some of them. I mean, there were times during some matches on cards where I'd go to the back area, and since I got to know some of the guys back in that time, I could talk with them for a little bit or something. So the midget match, that offered me that opportunity too. Guys, I want to thank you for having me on. It's been Absolutely. Fun. No, it's been a pleasure. George, before we let you go, um, I know you've got the book. Benny mentioned it at the top of the hour. Uh, do you have anything out, any social media, anything you want to plug or promote before we before we let you go? Well, I say, you know, if you're if you're bored out of your mind and you want to read about old school Minnesota's golden age of wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. And it's a book that I did about 10 years ago now, but it's still up to date in the sense that the message in there about wrestling when it was real. Um, I tell a lot of inside things in it in sidebars and it's available on Amazon. And if you're so inclined, order it. And uh, if you ever see me at an event or something, I'd be happy to sign it for you. I did one. I did an event just this past week, a live event. And uh, I was surprised at the number of books that were sold. And this was an event where I donated all the proceeds to the book to the Washington County Historical Society that hosted the event that night as kind of a donation. So I, I like to do that as well to keep uh, history alive all over. But yeah, Minnesota's golden age of wrestling. And it's basically the AWA story. Uh, it's only Minnesota on the title because it was published 
by the uh, Minnesota Historical Society, the St. Paul History Center, and they want Minnesota in the title. There you go. But that book is anything but boring. And I take that from somebody who's read it cover to cover. Well, you're a good man. I'll put your check in the mail to you. Free, free promotion. <laughs> Thank you guys a lot. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. Absolutely. You heard the man. Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, available on Amazon. Uh, if anybody's interested, I just checked while you were talking, George. I wanted to pull up the picture, and it's currently listed on sale, so that's always a good good deal. And uh, it's, like Benny said, great book, cover to cover. George, we can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, always great talking history with you. Always great uh, talking, just hearing the stories and your thoughts on everything. And I appreciate the uh, the insight on all our questions today. So thank you again. Thank you very much. God bless you both. And uh, down the road, let's do another one. Yeah, let's have absolutely. another one. Do it again. All right, all right George. Take care. Another successful interview, Benny. That's number three. Definitely have to do number four. We still have more questions to go we, through. Yeah, we barely scratched the surface. I, we had so much more to ask him. We, we say that every time. I mean, the fact that you could talk to a man. This is now three hours we've talked to him across his shows. And and we still have so much more to go over. I mean, George is the kind of guy that has forgotten more about wrestling than <clears throat> people like us will ever learn. It, it's incredible. Uh, and he, I mean, what a passion he still has for it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's always great to see that the, the, the passions are still there. A uh, quick shout out, if I can. Uh, our friends here at Virginia Championship Wrestling, VCW, uh, I, the <coughs> other weekend I went to a sporting, uh, a sport auditorium event, trade show, sports cards, comic books, that kind of stuff. And thanks to a contest they ran, I got a free meet and greet autograph with uh, Ronnie Garvin. And it, he had a he had a heck of a crowd like these are I mean, all these years later, people still lining up, shake his hand, talk to him, hear the stories the the passions are still there with with the serious wrestling fans. And I you'd like to see it. And that's why we do what we do. Oh, yeah. And I, I think uh, I, I remember a, a, a line in a Calvin and Hobbes book and they called it Halcyon Days. And I really think that was the Halcyon Days of professional wrestling that we'll never see again. Oh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spashian. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Take care, folks.